Well, good morning once again. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We'll be particularly focusing on verses 6 through 11, but I want to go ahead and read all of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. The grass withers, but the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, would you give us grace to think deeply on your loving kindness? We thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. Your mercies never come to an end. Lord, your faithfulness is new every morning. And we come desiring, O Lord, to know it anew, to know it afresh. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit in the pages of your word. We pray that you would change us this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a Christian this morning, then I know that you know and you believe that God loves you. You have confessed John 3.16, perhaps, for as long as you can remember. For God so loved, not just the offspring and descendants of Abraham, but the world. For God so loved the world. Some of you perhaps have sung, Jesus loves me, this I know from your earliest days. But it is possible that that this thought has passed through your mind, particularly as you have walked through a season of suffering. This thought, God, I know that you say you love me, but it sure doesn't feel like you love me. Have you ever had that thought? It doesn't feel like you love me, Lord. What do we do? How do we respond when that thought fills our heart? I'm reminded of the counsel of two famous theologians from my youth, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the 70s and Whitney Houston in the 80s, right? (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi said to us and to Luke, trust your feelings, right? And then Whitney Houston said in her song, how will I know if he really loves me? Don't trust your feelings. 
Now, Whitney Houston's counsel is better than Obi-Wan's counsel, isn't it? Though she was wrong that the greatest love of all is the learning to love yourself, right? That's wrong, but this is right. Don't trust your feelings. We need to doubt those feelings that God doesn't love us. But not just doubt our feelings, we need to douse our feelings in the truth of God's word, particularly the truth that we find here in Romans chapter 5. In this text, as we've been looking at the past few weeks, Paul has declared the benefits that are ours through our justification by faith alone. We have peace with God. We have access to the Father and to his grace. We have confident rejoicing in hope of the glory of God on the last day. We even have confident rejoicing in our suffering, Paul says, because we know that our tribulations are transforming us, and they lead ultimately to that hope that will never put us to shame. Why? Because God, who has poured out his Holy Spirit in our hearts through that Spirit, has poured out his love within our hearts. But our experience, our personal subjective experience of God's love tends to ebb and flow, doesn't it? Particularly when we are walking in darkness, that darkness of our circumstances can tend to cloud over our sense of the love of God within our hearts. And so here in verses 6 through 11, Paul grounds our subjective experience of God's love in the objective, unchanging deeds of God's love through his Son and in his Son, Jesus Christ. And in these verses, he answers three questions so that we might know with confidence that God really does love us. And here are the three questions. First, when did God love us? Second, how did God love us? And third, how will God love us? Let's look at these three questions and their answers, and then the response that these truths ought to elicit and create within our hearts. So first, when did God love us? Well, one answer that the Bible gives to this question is that God loved us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God told Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. But in our text this morning, Paul's answer is more focused within this world, within time. And his answer is this, God loved us when we were rebels under his just judgment and wrath. And because this is who we were when God loved us, and when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, we can know for certain that he loves us, for certain. And Paul actually makes this point four times with four different words. Look at verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8 he says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. This is who we were when God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. This is when God loved us. We were weak. And weak there doesn't refer to a physical weakness, but to a moral weakness, a moral helplessness and powerlessness, an incapacity to do anything good for our salvation. 
by nature. Paul has taught us in this letter, we are a godless people. We are an immoral people, sinful to the core. We are God's enemies. And because of our sinful state, because of our rebellion against him and his word, he is against us with a holy hostility. And yet, Paul tells us, at the right time, at the right time, not only the right time in the, the sense of God's eternally appointed time, as, as Paul will write in Galatians 4.4, the fullness of the times, but also at the right time in the sense of at the time of our greatest extremity and our greatest need, at the right time, God sent his son into the world to die for his enemies, for a sinful and a detestable people who wanted nothing to do with him, who rebelled against him in any way, who justly deserved only his wrath. Paul, in verse 7, says to us, do you see how abnormal this love of God is? Right? He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, it's not exactly clear if Paul is here using the words righteous and good as synonyms, right? And so he, he's just sort of repeating himself when he uses those two different words. Or if he's contrasting the righteous with the good person, if he's doing the latter, then what he's saying is, look, no one is likely to, to lay down his life for a person who commands their respect because of their integrity. But maybe, scarcely, possibly, right? Someone would have the courage to die for someone who has won their affections because of their kindness. Maybe that's what Paul is, is saying here. But either way, the point is clear. Right? Only on the rarest of occasions right, would you sacrifice your life for someone else's life. And certainly you wouldn't do that for an enemy's life. And yet what does Paul tell us? He tells us that God has shown his love by sending his son into the world to die for us when we weren't even good or righteous, but when we were unrighteous, when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus has laid down his life even for his enemies. Do you see Paul's point? There is nothing in you that constrained the love of God. There is nothing commendable, nothing attractive, nothing desirable, nothing worthy in you of God's love. There was nothing that should have caused God to love you or lead God to love you. He didn't love you because you were so lovely. He didn't love you because you were so lovable. He didn't love you because he saw that you were just on the verge of, of, of turning over a, a new leaf, uh, of being sorry for what you had done against him. No, there was nothing in us to attract us to God the way that, that, that nails and, and metal shavings attract the magnet. Right? Nothing in us attracting us to God. God loved us in spite of who we are. God loved us in spite of what we had done. God did not wait for us to become righteous, for us to change. But no, he sent redemption. He took the initiative to send Jesus to die even when we refused to change. Even there was no reason why God should have done this. When did God love us? He loved us when we were sinners, when we were enemies. And therefore we know, certainly, that God loves us. Do you remember those great passages in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 9 
when God told Israel why it was that he loved them and chose them and gave them the promised land. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, God traces his love back to his own love and to his promise. Listen, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But the Lord set his love on you and chose you because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out of Egypt by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He loved you because he loved you. That's what he's saying to Israel. And then in chapter 9, we read these words, Don't say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven the nations out before you in the promised land, don't say, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. No, it is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess this land. It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. And yet, and yet it is implied there, the Lord still loved his people Israel in spite of their love. What a glorious foretaste of what Paul would write here in Romans 5. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were ungodly and weak at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. So how can we know that God really loves us? Because of when he loved us, when we least deserved it, when it would be totally within his rights not to love us. But secondly, Paul answers another question, the question, how did God love us? How did God love us? And of course, the answer, as we've seen, is the cross of Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But notice that Paul says that the cross of Jesus shows God's love for us. Now, we have to be careful here. Paul is, is not denying that Jesus is fully God when he sets forth these two persons of the Godhead in, in no means. Uh, rather, as you see in verse 10, when he mentions God's Son, God, as Paul often does, is a reference to the Father here. The cross shows the Father's love. Now, I wonder if you often think about the cross in this way as demonstrating, showing the love of the Father. Perhaps when you think of the cross, you think more of the love of the Son. And, and there's not, it's not wrong to think in that way. Paul, Galatians 2.20, Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Right? We read also in Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or, or John in Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. It's right to, to see the love of Jesus in the cross of Jesus. But we must never drive a wedge between the Father and the Son when we think about the cross. We must never think about the cross as somehow the, the act of a loving son trying to calm down a, a, an angry and irate and, and wrathful and furious father. No, the Bible is clear. Paul is clear. It's the exact opposite that is true. It's the father's love that leads to the death of Jesus. 
It's the Father's love that, that, that sends forth the Son, the way that a cannon might shoot forth a cannonball. It's the love of God the Father that sends Jesus into the world. And so the cross shows us the Father's love for us, how deep the Father's love for us we have sung. The Father is the one who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over to death out of love for us. So there's no opposition between Father and Son. Both persons of the Godhead are one in their love for sinners as is the Holy Spirit through whom the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Before the foundation of the world, the Father has loved us and chosen us and given us as a people to his Son, has devised a plan that that this people will be saved by the life and the death of the Son. And Jesus, the Son, willingly embraced that plan, became a man to live and to die and to rise again from the dead, on behalf of those the Father had given to him, that he might accomplish the salvation of all of God's elect. So how did God love us? By sending forth his Son to die on the cross. But did you notice that Paul here goes even deeper into what the cross has accomplished, how God has has loved us and accomplished our salvation through the cross? In verses 9 and 10, we, we see these two descriptions of how the the cross has saved us. Verse 9, we read, we have now been justified by his blood. And then in verse 10, we read, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We've seen this before. It is through the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that we are justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight. Righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us, as we confess this morning. This is the language of the courtroom. It's judicial language. It's God declaring something about us. No longer are we guilty. We are not guilty. There is no condemnation for us. Our status has been changed before God because of the cross. But we haven't seen yet in this letter this word reconciled. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This isn't language of the courtroom. This is language of friendship. This is language of relationship. You see, not only were we hostile to God, rejecting him and replacing him with idols and and rejecting his holy laws, we were hostile to God, but God was also, therefore, hostile to us. He was opposed to us. He was alienated from us because of our sin. And yet Paul tells us through the cross of Jesus. God has removed his alienation from us. He has been reconciled to us. He has reconciled us to himself. He has established peace between us and him by taking away our sin that was the grounds of his hostility toward us. He's not only given to us this righteous standing before him, the righteous God, but he has also given us a right relationship with himself, accomplished when Jesus died on the cross and received by us when we trusted in him. So how do we know that God really loves us? Because of what he has done for us. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he has justified us. He has reconciled us to himself. And he's done this 
not just when we were unrighteous enemies, but he's done it through his son. He's done it through the death of his son. How can we not know, even when it doesn't feel like it, we know that God loves us. Well, finally, we've answered the question of when God loved us. Paul answered the question of how did God love us? But notice that we also see that God loves us when we think about how will God love us? Those statements I read at the beginning of verses 9 and 10 are actually assumptions that form the basis of conclusions about what will happen to us in the future. Right? Conclusions that are this last piece of evidence of God's love for us. And you notice in verses 9 and 10, both of them, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. In verse 9, he says, If we have now been justified by Christ's blood, then how much more will, will we be saved by Christ from the wrath of God on the last day? Verse 10, he says, If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, how much more, now that we are friends, will we be saved by the endless life of Jesus? Again, into eternity. You see what Paul is doing here. He's saying our present acceptance by God, our present righteousness before God, our present peace with God guarantees our future salvation on the last day. Jesus will rescue us and will shield us from the coming wrath of God, even from his own wrath. John in Revelation 6 speaks of the wrath of the Lamb that is to come. And Paul is saying we have been justified. Through the death of Jesus, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will be saved from the wrath of God on the last day. And then in verse 10, he's saying we have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. We know that in union with the resurrected Jesus, we will be given eternal life in him. Do you see the confidence that we have in the love of God who has reconciled us and who will save us? who has justified us, and who will save us. You notice how Paul here is reminding us that we can talk about salvation both in a, a past tense as well as a future tense. And if we were to look again at verses 3 to 5, even in a present tense, right? there's a sense in which you were saved when Jesus died for your, your sins on the cross. But there's also a sense in which you are being saved now as the Spirit works righteousness within you, infuses grace within you as we've confessed this morning, and enables you to walk in that grace. And then finally, there is a sense in which you have not yet been saved, and you will be saved on the last day. That is, you have not yet experienced the fullness of your salvation, but you will on the day that Jesus Christ returns. The God who has saved you through the death of his son, will not fail to follow through on your salvation. He will not fail to save you to the end, to bring you all the way home. This is the glory of the gospel, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one, nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand, Jesus says in John chapter 10. This assurance is proof that God loves us and he will love us all the way home. So how do we know that God really loves us? Because of when he loved us, because of how he loved us, and how he will love us. 
So what should our response be to this glorious love of God? Well, first, let me say this. We must marvel at this love. Never take it for granted. Never take it for granted. If there's one thing that COVID taught us is that we should never take toilet paper for granted. That it's just there on the shelves. Don't take that for granted. What has this war in Ukraine taught us? What has inflation taught us? That gas prices will rise, right? We should never take low gas prices for granted. I remember being a, an RUF intern at UT Knoxville. The year before I moved to seminary, it was 1999, I was about to move here to seminary, and I will never forget filling up my car at 67 cents a gallon. It's stuck in my head because like, I've never seen gas this low in my life, right? 67 cents a gallon. When Katrina came through in 2005, we were living in Columbia, Mississippi, I was pastoring, and I'll never forget that when the power came back on, right, 249 was on all the gas stations. That's what it had been, right? Before Katrina, before the power shut down, that's what it stayed for a few days, a few weeks. 249. And here we are paying 399 and above. We often stop taking something for granted when we lose it, like we've lost it in COVID or we've lost it in these gas prices. But here's the thing, you're never going to lose the love of God. And yet, we still tend to take it for granted. And therefore, we must strive to marvel at it anew every day. We must strive not to take it for granted. How do we do that? Well, every morning when you wake up and you're lying on your bed, perhaps quote Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 to yourself. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Remind yourself of the steadfast love of the Lord. Do what Psalm 48 tells you to do and think on his loving kindness. Think on it. Meditate on it. Recite to yourself even the truths that we've seen here in this passage so that they never grow old, never grow dim, never grow boring or stale, never stop burning deep within your hearts. So marvel at the love of God. Do not take it for granted. But second, our response to this word ought to be that we would rejoice with confidence. Look at verse 11. More than that, says Paul, more than the the glory that we will be saved on the last day by the life of Jesus and spared from the wrath of God on the last day, more than that, we also rejoice in God now, he's saying, now, today, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We boast in God. We rejoice in God now. See this confidence of of Paul's how much more argument. How much more, having been justified, having been reconciled, how much more will we be saved? That truth ought to fill our hearts with joy today. Ought to fan into flame the love of God within our heart today. Our experience of God's love, but also, and here's the last response, It ought to fan into flame our love for God and for others. We are to love as we have been loved, as John told us in our scripture reading this morning. But it's not just John, is it? Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 32 through 5, 2 writes this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as those who have been loved, Paul says. Love. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering, a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. What did John say? 
those for whom Jesus has laid down his life, those children of God must lay down their lives for others, must sacrifice themselves, must deny themselves for the sake of others. Our love for one another is directly proportional to our knowledge of the love of God for us. The more we know that God loves us, the more we know that God has forgiven us, the more we will love and forgive those who have sinned against us, those who have wronged us. We will walk in the love of Christ who gave himself for us. We will walk in that love by loving and giving ourselves for others. But it's also true that the more we know God's love, the more we know the forgiveness of God, the more we will love God. And aren't we taught this, this beautiful truth and that story of Jesus in the Pharisee's house in Luke 7? You remember this story? I'll close with this. Jesus was invited to eat with one of the Pharisees. He goes in, he eats. You remember this story. And there's a woman there who was a sinner, a sexually sinful woman, and probably a prostitute of some sort. And she came hearing that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. And the text tells us that she came and she brought a, a, a jar of perfume and standing behind him as he was reclining at the table, she's weeping, wetting his feet with her tears, anointing him with this perfume. And of course, the Pharisee, what did he do? He thought within his heart and he said, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is that's touching him. She's a sinner. Of course, Jesus, being a prophet, being the Son of God, being the divine, omniscient Son of Man, says, Simon, I got something to say to you. He says, say it, Lord. He says, there were two moneylenders. One owed 500 denarii. One owed five. The, the person to whom these people owed them forgave them both. Which one do you think would love him more? And the guy's like, he's smart. He's not stupid. He's like, well, of course, the one who was forgiven the greater debt. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And he said, you see this woman? From the time I entered into your house, you've given me no water for my feet, right? no perfume. But look at her. She's anointed my feet with her tears. She's poured out this perfume upon me. You've given me no kiss. And she's kissed me from the day, time she's come in. And then he says this to Simon. He says, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you understand that you have been forgiven much, if you know how ungodly and weak and sinful you are, and yet that God still loved you, then that knowledge of being forgiven, that knowledge of being forgiven this incredibly huge debt that you could never repay, it will lead you to love God. But if, like the Pharisee, you think, I'm really not that bad, certainly not as bad as that woman, and you think God's only forgiven you a little bit, then you're going to love just a little bit. You're going to love the Lord and other people just a little bit. And of course, what Jesus is saying to him is, hey, Simon, you've never been forgiven. You've never been forgiven because you have no love in your heart. 
And so here, Jesus reminds us that if we desire to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, if we desire to love our neighbor as ourselves, where does this come from except by knowing that God really loves us and has loved us, even when we are sinners, sending his son into the world to die for our sins. May the Lord work that love within our hearts, the knowledge of that love within our hearts, so that we might love one another, so that we might love him supremely. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we meditate upon that cross and your love to us in the cross, would you fill our hearts with love for you, Lord, knowing that we love because you first loved us. You've loved us undeservedly. You've loved us when we had not merited or earned it. Lord, you have loved us freely. Therefore, how can we not love you? How can we not give our lives away for you and for one another? So Lord, come, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Pour out your love within our hearts so that we might know it deeper and deeper every day. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending your Son into this world to save sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.